0: SheQuest Podcast is the home of heart opening dialogues, stories, and experiences for self identified women on a SheQuest. Season five is now bilingual as I welcome co host Nadia Bonafant. Hey Nadia! Hey Estelle! Delighted to be part of SheQuest Podcast Forward Movement to Live Aware, Bold, and Whole. Let's do this! Woohoo! Hi, SheQuest. Welcome to SheQuest podcast with guests. My name is Estelle Thompson, and I'm so enthralled that you're here. I've been wanting to have this beautiful, beautiful, you should see, you can't see her right now, but you should see her. Powerhouse. She's fixing herself. I love it. Powerhouse of a woman for so long on the show. So I want to introduce her to you. Dr. Rohini Banerjee who was born and raised in Dartmouth Nova Scotia. She's the daughter of immigrants from northern India, is an associate professor of French and Francophone studies in the department of modern language and classic and graduate coordinator of the international development studies program and a faculty member in the Asian studies graduate women and gender studies, intercultural studies and peace and conflict studies program at St. Mary's University in Halifax. When not teaching or writing her own work, Rohini serves as president of the St. Mary's University Faculty Union. And as a mom of three boys, Rohini self identifies as a woman scholar of color. And on a personal note, Rohini took my parent and baby yoga class a long time ago. I think it was eight years ago, eight or seven years ago. And it's always such a pleasure to connect with her and read her discourses on diversity and watch her boys
1: grow on social
0: media. Rohini,
1: hi. Hi, Sally Estelle. It's just a pleasure to be in your space again.
0: Uh, and it's a courageous space and it's a conversation that I've been wanting to have. For so long. We've touched on it here and there, but um I think you're you're here. I, I just can't wait for everyone to hear what you have to say. Um at SheQuest here, we always start with the same first question. It's a staple question, and it's what makes you feel alive today?
1: What a beautiful question. Uh, and and being alive is a gift, as we know. We we don't always have a choice in in uh in the chagrin or the sadness that we make or in the happiness and joys that we experience, we don't have a lot of choice in that. Um, But how we approach the joys and pains of our lives, that we have a choice in. And so what makes me alive is the uh, value of choice. And that's what drives my my thirst for feminism, for equality, uh, you know, egalite, all of that is because I have a choice. And so what makes me alive is that I get to choose how I respond to pain, to sadness, to joy, to um, the mundane, the everyday, to extraordinary moments like this. So I get a choice, and that's what makes me alive.
0: Mm, and that choice is really based in awareness. I feel right. You can't make a choice if you're not aware. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's a growth process. I I hit forty five uh, last month. Yeah. And I feel like I am the most, and we all say this, many women will say this in their mid forties as they approach into their fifties, um, that as we age, we, we, we know ourselves a bit better. We, we feel our joints in a little different way. We, we understand that our mind is the strongest organ in our entire body. Um, but we do, we do need to reconnect with the the spiritual and whatever that might be for everyone. And for me, um, being self-aware of uh, my needs. Uh, When we're a mom, when we are an educator, somebody who who wants to nurture and care and grow with others, we often forget about ourselves. Um, And, you know, it's not just about skincare, it's not just about bubble bath, it's not just about having a favorite book, um, but it's really about knowing when you're not doing well, and vocalizing it, or in some way, uh, sending it out into the universe and saying universe, guess what, Uh, Rohini, who seems like she's on point all the time is struggling right now and that awareness does come with age, it comes with experience, it comes with vulnerability, um, it, it, it comes with uh, the choice to sit down and say I need help um, and that's been a really recent discovery for myself. Uh, I've been you know I, I know that many people think that mental health, mental awareness of oneself, of one's space in the world ah uh, you know if you're a professional you're fine, you've got the, the salary you've got a healthy family you're, you're fine like what else do you need and we forget that beyond all of the letters after my name or or where I might be living or how, how I approach life I'm still a human being and I still have a spirit and I need that to be nourished and so um awareness self-awareness of my own needs and what I need to be uh, the best version of myself every day um, that's been very empowering
0: Yeah, it's been recent for me, too, like, really, I think, since the start of the whole pandemic, where, like, every day, I ask myself, like, what do I need today? (laughs) Like, how simple and how freaking, like, freeing to, you know, have, you know, if it's that one question that I ask, and it's like, and I give myself what I need. (laughs) actually you know it's one it's one thing to ask yourself and then it's one thing
1: to like actually do it yeah right. but I think it's, it's also asking yourself so we have a routine we have people in our lives that we care for we have responsibilities um but we also have agency and we have autonomy and and we've sometimes we meaning those who perhaps identifies women from those who um, come from uh you know, societies or cultural backgrounds where women don't come first, um, to ask yourself what you need is a form of resistance. Uh, And for me, it's actually resisting oppression in different ways. Um, I, I told you on the offset this morning when you were asking about pronouncing my name and I openly told you, I actually have been mispronouncing my name incorrectly and that is a form of decolonization. And part of decolonization means Addressing myself correctly, my own name correctly, my own needs correctly, and it feels weird. It feels strange. It feels strange to actually say to myself, I might need to go see a therapist. No, you can't. You're a professional. You don't need help from an outside body Actually, I do. And it's incredibly empowering when I find other colleagues who are maybe in my field or may not be, who'll say to me, you know, I've been going to a therapist for three years. What? You also have needs too? And you're addressing them? How empowering. And and then, ironically, I'm giving, you know, I'm talking to junior faculty, junior colleagues, uh, sometimes racialized, sometimes not. And I'm saying to them, guess what? If if I had gone to therapy 10 years ago, I would have been probably the premier of Nova Scotia by now. And I say, so I say this to myself constantly, and I think it's a good thing that I didn't get therapy 10 years ago because Rankin would not have a job right now. So I think about that and I reroute uh, some of the regrets that we supposedly have in our lives and, and on our journey. And I say to myself, well, I'm ready now. I'm in therapy now. This is amazing. I have the option, the choice to think about myself and i'm very open with my own children about it about what my needs are and and they uh i hope see um behavior modeling behavior of what a healthy lifestyle really is about
0: and i just i got full body shiver about you know just mentioning how like you had to look at your own name you know and um it's it struck me because and you're like that didn't feel good like at first I was like you know and one exercise I do Rohini um not in yoga classes but in my retreats one of the first thing is um finding out the meaning of your name and um and a lot it's very cathartic some some of us don't even know the meaning of our of our name and how like you know, yeah, I can only speak to my experience, but I know how my, the meaning of my name really has supported almost my mission, my calling, and um, and so, so I'm curious now. Do you know the meaning of your name?
1: I do. And I will say that's such an interesting point you've made. So I use this as part of my icebreaker for students on my first day of class. So I'm like, okay, this class, here's the course outline. These are my, you know, this is my rubric. This is These are my expectations. Let's talk about me. And, and I self-identify in the beginning of class. I tell them where I'm from, that like I'm the first kid in my house to ever get a graduate degree. I'm a kid of immigrants. You know, I tell them everything about them and sort of they're a little bit like overloaded. Like we just want to come to the class. We don't want to know about you. But I find that it really, creates, uh, I, I want to have a relationship with my students that's, you know, cerebral, that's spiritual, that connects because, hey, they're, they're coming to St. To, to Mary's. They've decided to come to my class. They could have taken another class. I feel like it's an opportunity for me to connect. So I do that on the first day. So I self-identify I, I was a, as a learned speaker of French. Uh, you know, I didn't leave my mother's body speaking French. I continuously am a student um, of, of the language and, and, and what I do. And then on top of that, I give a little uh, one of the icebreaker questions is, you know, I play this beautiful video of Ian Hanuman Singh, uh, the great CBC reporter, who's beautiful on the eyes to to, to look and watch uh, speak. Uh, And he does this uh, really great interview uh, where he talked about how he changed his name to impress a girl. Uh, and he has this deep, gorgeous radio voice, um, but he's Hanuman Singh and that's his name. And he changed his name because he thought if he had a more white passing name, uh, the white girls would want to be with him. And he's, he's racialized, he's, he's of South Asian heritage. Um, and then he realized it wasn't about the name, it was about his voice and his, and his intellect and his beauty, that why women were, were interested in him. And so I use that as an ice breaking video. And I tell students, hey guess what I'm still figuring out my name and let's figure out what everybody else's name is about And so we do have an icebreaker uh, name game that we do where we discover each other's names and for for somebody who comes outside of the eurocentric circle and in a in a dominantly uh, white population often I'm asked what's your name mean And you know no one goes and asks you know Samantha what Samantha's name name might mean because there's an assumption that, There is a meaning to it, but it's not important in the sense that it doesn't help identify her. But because racialized people are often uh, adding more identifiers to their package, so they need to have more information and more data out there so that uh, the dominant population can understand them, uh, racialized people often have a meaning to their name, or at least they have to out themselves more often than perhaps white population. And it's really been fascinating to see because I have been in social situations where my name is Rohini and people will say, oh, that's a pretty name. What does it mean? And I've got a Catherine and a Jennifer and a Heather beside me. No one's asking them uh, whether their name is pretty or whether their name ha- has a meaning. And that's, that always fascinates me. And so I'll reroute the question and I'll say, if you're going to ask me, you've got to ask my friends what their name means as well. And that then suddenly reminds the person who's asking me the question that you decided that my name is outside of white norms and thus it means a meaning. So that's, that's my sort of rerouted uh, story, uh, answer to your question. Uh, Rohini actually is, I believe, uh, was one of the lovers and or wives of a Hindu god. I can't remember which one. I'm actually not Hindu, so I don't actually know all of, all of the mythology. It also is a star, which I think might work with Estelle, but I'm not sure. And thirdly, literally means one who climbs the ladder of success. Um, And Banerjee is a uh, Bengali name, uh, originally would be Bandupadai, would be the actual name. And Banerjee means teacher. So I feel like that works out. The kismet or the universe Mm -hmm. did me well.
0: I I would agree, I would agree. And I love love this discourse. and I mean, in my groups, like, yeah, the Samantha's and the Jennifer's and the, and, and to like, they've never asked what that means. And um, it's very cathartic for them actually to add that meaning to, uh, and sometimes there's like a big, like, I'd say almost like an exile, like, oh, something is making sense. Like there's a piece of the puzzle that, <laughs> that comes
1: And that's, and that's being inclusive, right? So that's a way of being inclusive. And when we talk about inclusivity, you know, it's not just about including, um, the one that, um, may have not been included prior to that scene. So it's about reminding the person asking that question. If you're asking my identity, my ethnicity, my postal code, why I speak French, why I don't speak with an accent when I speak English, then you need to ask these friends over here, the ones with the freckles and, and the red hair, why are you not asking them that question? Why are you not asking them where they're from? And so that's inclusivity. And what that does is it reminds the person asking the question that you know what you really decided to target one person, and you're assuming that these other are part of the the, the white orbit, the right the, the 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 orbit upon which we all you know surround ourselves, and that's unfortunate. And you know I remember uh, speeding very very high speeds <clears throat> in. Um, I think it was North Carolina, South Carolina. I was very young. I was with a friend. We had gone to a, a, a conference. I was a doctoral student at the time. And she's a beautiful blonde, blue-eyed, looks like Scarlett Johansson. And there's me. And we're she's speeding. And we get this beautiful, very handsome state trooper who stops us, you know, with his, with his hat and everything. And he tells us that we're, we're speeding and we put on our perfect, you know, Canadian accent to make sure that he knows that we're not from North America, South, South Carolina. And uh, as uh, he's asking her for her driver's license, I have to reach out in the back to get it for her. And I thought about it for a second because I thought I'm reaching for the back. I mean, in, in the Southern United States. I perhaps am perceived to be black, which is what most people thought I was. Um, and I don't know what he's going to do, how he's going to react to me. And this was well before the discourse of of, uh, the uh, condition of of Black Americans in general around the police, I was even aware of it. Anyways, uh, when he gave her the warning ticket, he chose for data reasons to choose her race for her and he put white and we drove off to the airport. And she looked at the ticket and she said, why, is he th- why does he think I'm white? And I said, well, you're a blonde. You present as, as fair skin with blue eyes. The assumption is that you're white. And he, she said to me, why didn't he just ask me? And and so it's very fascinating to hear that from a white person who feels that they are then placed into a box without without any without any question. Most likely, if it had been me driving, I would have been asked. And maybe if I hadn't been, what would what would he have ticked off in the box? Would he have put Pacific Islander? Amazing. Would he have put Filipina? Amazing. I don't know what he would have chosen, but that would have been based on his intercultural competence, his worldview, his training. It's it's quite scary actually to think that one person decides what your ethnicity is and without even asking. And that was a very interesting point for me, a moment for me, because I was experiencing assumptions in North Carolina and South Carolina people were assuming that I was black people were assuming that I was from Dominican Republic I mean I was having fun with it but my white friend was very offended by the fact that this man decided to just place her in a box without asking and I looked at her and I said that's what happens to many of us all the time and it was an interesting experience we had a, we had an engaging conversation and uh, even though we we got stopped in the highway in the United States
0: I think what I'm I love the, the conversation around it that you had and this um, like safety you both have to have the conversation you know and um, and lately you're so easy to talk to Rokini I had my questions planned and now I thought but um I, I just I guess out of like I I just wish and why I was craving so much to have this conversation with you it's like you know your friend she was safe enough to to talk to you about it and I sometimes I feel like we don't have a lot of space to feel safe about yes. questioning social justice issues or questioning like wait what why is this and I'm coming from somebody who you know I like I don't know everything and I, I'd love to know more do you know do you know where I'm coming from like I and I, love, I was like, oh my God, those conversations are so needed to like debunk all of this, you know, debunk why this cop didn't feel like he had to ask I her do, I or do. why, I you do. know, like, and I feel a lot of us are just so, I just had this conversation this week with my husband, like, we're like where can we ask questions like and we um and and even sometimes and um and and i don't want to offend but it's like even in in those social like i've taken so many social justice in terms of like the yoga part you know and it's like i don't sometimes i i'm so afraid to ask a question because i should know more or can you speak to that a little bit
1: yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, when I teach on African identity, part, part of my work that I do, because I work on the Indian Ocean. And so it's Lille-Maurice, it's Madagascar, it's that area. And that's all, there are no Indigenous people that were, there was the dodo, the bird, and that was it. Like, there were no humans on Maurice. And so when I meet Mauritian students, um, ethnically, they are very diverse. We have Creole, Africain, we have, you know, Français, we have... Um, and d'origine so We have the whole mix of people. Um, and so it's very Métis, Métisage, and all of that. And someone like me, who's um, born in Canada, from Punjabi Northern parent, Northern Indian parents, who's not Mauritian, who's now teaching on Mauritian identity with her learned French accent. Um, It's 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 very interesting because I know and I and I say that on the outset when I'm teaching the literature course, I say I am not I do not have lived experience I don't I am not an expert and so I will ask the Mauritian students who take my class, which is a great privilege to have them. um, And sometimes I'm a little bit scared. I'm scared when there's a Québécois in my class or a francophone from France or Belgium or Mali um, or, or, or Benin because I'm like oh no they're gonna know that I'm a learned speaker. And that's okay, so I out myself right away. And that's what I tell my friends who don't know a lot or who are still learners. I'll say, you have to out yourself in the beginning. And you know, you don't even have to say, I'm going to offend you or I don't mean to offend you. Actually just say, look, I'm Estelle, I'm a learner, I'm a lifelong learner, I'm a life student, I'm a student of yoga, I'm a student of life and I wanna know more. And what do I need to do to learn and write and, and understand and process and digest? And then use that information for better impact. It's fine to internalize and read all about X, Y, and Z, but how are you going to use that for better impact and purpose in your life? That's what's the key. And so Estelle is not just going to read about asanas and positions and breath she's going to use that to change people's lives. And that's what the key is. And so um, when you ask questions with purpose, with intention and an open heart, 99% of the time you're gonna get a good response. What's really important is to acknowledge uh, is that those with the knowledge, may it be elders, may it be African Nova Scotians, may it be those descendants of of enslavement uh, or under oppression, they have been the keepers of that knowledge and are only very recently learning how to output that knowledge and only very recently have had dominant cultures want to know more and so this is all very new and and we don't know exactly how to do it Uh, and what's important as well is to remember that it's very tiring and exhausting for those who carry that knowledge to be constantly educating and uh, I mean I signed up for the gig I I have a job and I get to do that and I find it it's a very empowering moment well sometimes I want to eat my hamburger and at at a pub and not be asked five questions whether I'm Iranian whether Iraqi are you a Muslim did you get an arranged marriage you know what I just want to eat my hamburger dude like leave me alone and that gets tiring and are your kids mixed like why do you have a nose pin Uh, why is your hair like that did you straighten it because it's is it a weave like are you black I mean it's incredible what people have the audacity to ask and that's not with good intentions that's not with the intention of knowing and understanding and connecting with that person it's more because they are afraid they don't know enough information and they need to gather more data I feel like we're like the terminator you know the terminator when he used to scan the bodies before Before he would, he would terminate them. I loved Arnold. Oh my goodness, Arnold. Uh, And so I think about that. And I think we're like the Terminator. We go around collecting data based on a one dimension. And so some of us like Estelle want to know more. And how do we do that, right? So first of all, this is one of the best ways to do it. You're creating a 360 experience. It might be only audio, but uh, you're getting breadth and you're getting depth and you're getting... um, really wholesome conversations in, in in this. So this is a great aspect of doing it, but not everybody can do a podcast. Sometimes people are just at a pub and they see they want to talk to somebody and they don't know how to approach it. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's like it's like when we have lines when we're trying to date somebody or trying to get people's attention. You know, we have these people who have bad lines, like they have terrible lines and they, they don't work. But sometimes they do. And sometimes they do because we're used to that. And so sometimes we're used to just people having bad approaches. And we make excuses for bad behavior. Well, I mean, she's a good white woman. She does yoga. Like she seems like she's a worldly person. So, what if she asks me if i had an arranged marriage? So, there's a way that you would ask that question, right? I mean, you would get to know the person. You would have a, com- and then you would say, "Am I comfortable? Are you comfortable for me asking you some questions? You know, is it is it okay for me, Rohini, to ask you this question?" Um, and and often that is done you know, from one one way. And so what I always say is, well, if you're gonna ask me that question, then I'm gonna ask you a question. Are you okay with that? That gives empowerment and agency and autonomy to the person being asked the questions. And I think a lot of people who are asked questions, don't do that. And because they see it as um, being difficult, uh, being abrasive, being um, creating obstacles. No, actually dialogue is a flow. It's a conversation. If Estelle wants to talk to me, I want to talk to her. I want to know about the new glass, the glasses that she's wearing right now. I think they're great on her. I want to talk about that. I want to know about about her family. I want to know about this and that. So if you get to ask me a question, I get to ask you a question. And that's how I approach it. And And I actually talk to, you know, some younger students, like international students who have shared with me some of their experiences. And I just say like, if someone asks you a question, answer. ask it right back. And that will give that person a reminder of boundaries and respect, and also remind them that whatever you can ask me, I can also ask you. And, and that changes the power dynamic.
0: Yeah, this is so great. And something we actually initially just started speaking about, it makes me think of, we were just saying, like, that's why I wanted you on the podcast. Like, let's say on social media, And that's it's something I like. I really and cut me if like you think I'm wrong, but I really see so much parallel with like grief work and and this because I, I just related to like you said. You mentioned I love that the audacity of people like that word because like I just did a whole entire podcast like things that people say to you when you've just lost a child or when like, it's like, can you sit with that for just like a minute? Yeah. You know, just one second. And, and, um, and just, I love that aspect. Like, so I've been really grappling with the, like, we, like the, the one dimensional aspect of um, let's say social media, where there's a lot, a lot of us get like this, like the information now let's face it and and just i'm just craving the dialogue you know and the realness like sometimes like i go on social media i'm like but wait like in my real life this is not happening (laughs) and like i'm craving that like this is why my podcast is called she quest because in i need to ask questions (laughs) you know in the word quest there's the word question um and sorry, I was just taking two notes. Like there's so much like gold that you said like about how how new, um, I'm gonna butcher it, but what you said about like a lot of the elders are like just exhausted. It's very new for them to be, because like now we're like suddenly like asking questions, but like they've been grappling with this like
1: since they're born. Yeah, right? forever, yeah, and, yeah.
0: Just how, and we were just saying about, um, you know, to not take a diagram at face value. You know, it's like you can't, and that feels like grief for me. Which is, I feel, it's more what I know. You know, and that we were like, you can't explain something on, like a one a one post is like not enough to like grapple and there's a work to like I find with diversity and inclusivity and all that it's like this role like yeah. it, you can't just understand it no. with your head no no you know do you get
1: I hear you and I'm just I'm just trying to find a quote that I I was looking at this morning on grief um, if I could if, if you can indulge me let me let me read it to you. Yes. Um, so it's by Glennon Doyle Melton and I can send you the, the bit later. It's the text is called Carry On, Warrior. Grief is not something to be fixed. It's something to be born, B-O-R-N-E, together. And when the time is right, there is always something that is born from it. After real grief, we are reborn as people with wider and deeper vision and greater compassion for the pain of others. We know that. So through our friend's grief, we maintain in our hearts the hope that in the end, good will come of it. But we don't say that to our friend. We let our friend discover that on her own. Hope is a door each one must open for herself. That comes back to that choice bit that I was talking to you about earlier and when somebody has the audacity to say to someone like yourself how did that happen how did you lose the child etc etc you know they haven't gotten to that point yet where they've sat with it You, you mentioned that earlier right they haven't sat down and let that grief be a, a point of, pro, you know, propelling you towards what you're doing now. Uh, it's because of the grief and pain you've experienced and you continue to experience in, in every day in different ways um, that you are where you are right now. And we know this, and we know that uh, part of Tommy's purpose was to prepare you for, for here and now. Um, does it make sense? Does it hurt your heart? All of, all of the above. Yes, it doesn't make sense. And yes, it hurts your heart. However, you are here. And there is an impact that you have um, based on that pain and grief. And I think that when elders and those carrying uh, the years of oppression, um, start to resist by actually telling stories. And that's why I think creative writing and storytelling is so empowering. I've always been a little secret poet in my head. Um, I've always been interested in writing, never felt I was good enough. That's the the general imposter syndrome. But on top of being someone that looks like myself and teaching in a Eurocentric language, etc., never good enough to write poetry. And I've realized uh, how important poetry has been as part of my release of who I am and my decolonizing. I think about my my late grandmothers who were lived under British colonial oppression. What would they be thinking right now if they saw their granddaughter talking to Estelle Thompson on SheQuest? What would they be thinking? They'd say, how did this happen? We couldn't even read and write. We were we were put, we were segregated by British colonial power. We were put into working camps. My mother's side of the family are indigenous. Um, they're, they're a tribal group, a nomadic group. Uh, and so there was even more oppression because they were not part of the of the middle uh, and upper class uh, Hindu society. And we were non-Hindus, we, um, we, we had a lot of extra labels attached under oppression. And so uh, for every success that I have, if it's uh, you know making a good ca- cup of coffee to, to writing a poem, every single success that I have in my life, I think about those two women who would be thinking, gosh, darn it, we did okay. So that grief and sadness of the oppression under a, uh, a British oppression, I think about that every day when I approach a difficult day, a challenging day, uh, a paper that I can't write, I'm procrastinating the piles of laundry or the, the nasty comment by the, the guy who served me coffee. Whatever it is that is, I'm being challenged with, again, I try to see it as a choice. Um, and then there are days where I collapse and I'm tired and I'm exhausted. And don't please don't ask me any more EDI questions. Please don't ask me about diversity. Please don't ask me about equity because I'm tired. And so that, and that's okay, right? And that's okay because uh, part of being a learner and part of being an educator uh, is filling filling the bucket again, right? So I tell students, you know, when you're writing your paper for me, there's going to be days where you will not know what to say to me. You're going to be so worried about your grade and you're forgetting about the actual process and the journey. And that sounds cliche, but it's true. It's true. And so when I get tired of EDI, and when I get tired of being the only brown woman at the table, and when I get tired of being a token, I say to myself, I and like Oprah Winfrey says, and some of your uh, listeners may not know who Oprah is, because it might be might be too young. Uh, but Oprah always says that when she was the only black woman at a table of white men, white, you know, she brought the ancestors with her. And, and, you know, you bring Tommy with you, wherever you go, I, I bring my grandmothers with me. Uh, these are our, our links and our strengths. There are weaknesses too, because we want to do well for them, right? We want to make sure that they, they, they feel honored and that we honor them. Uh, and that's the, that's the continual struggle. Uh, that we all face uh, are we good enough in our space are we asking the right questions um, am I going to offend uh, am I too brown in this space am I too loud am I too woman uh, we constantly are asking those questions and some of it I you know internalize and some of it I don't and I and I use writing now to to help me uh, process what's going on
0: I love that you mentioned writing I, I just love, that we have been able to wrap, like, wrap <laughs> it around a nice little guess is I'm sure it's the you know the public speaking uh you that that comes out and also you're a writer so I think uh, bringing a theme and linking it back and just so eloquently uh Rohini I'm curious like was there a moment in You're like, I feel such, there's such fire when you speak about diversity and inclusivity. There's a passion, like a tigress, you know, and um, a roar, like inside you. Was there a moment, I've been interviewing women for like three years now on the show. Mm. And I'm fascinated with like, like for me, there's like really... And it might not be like that, but like almost like crossovers, like you you mentioned in your language, like rerouting, you know, like um, for me, sometimes I, I I use like almost like reestablishing like, like identity wise, yes. like was there sometime maybe in your early years, yes. like even before like your education and all that, where you're like... Ugh, like, this is my calling. Like, this is my dharma. This is
1: mm, great question. So I love music and writing and I never had formal training in any of them in the sense, like creative writing or, 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 or music training. Um, but my dad really loved music and would always play, you know, eclectic things, everything from British rock to classical Indian to, you know, Drake, I mean, the whole thing, he has the whole gamut, and he would always play everything for me. Um, so I was really exposed to plurality from the beginning, I understood that I had a a diversity within my own family because of my of my mom and dad being from different ethnic groups within India, um, you know, because we know there are 26 official languages and a plethora of tribal and ethnic groups. So plurality and diversity has always been there, but you know, early on, I I knew that uh, I had my my mom's brother was a major in the Indian Army, and um, when he moved to Canada, he found a job at driving a taxi. And he would have piles of books in his car and he would just read and read and read and read. And I remember I was very quiet as a kid. I struggled with my body image. I was overweight. I've written her story about it. So I'll have to send that story to you at some point about being plus size. Um, And I I hated myself. So I was actually a very, very quiet kid. And that's very hard for my students to understand. Like I was super introverted. I was super shy. I didn't want to speak because I didn't want people to look at me because I hated my face. I hated my body. I hated everything about myself. And so my uncle would, I would be waiting outside Micmac Mall uh, in Dartmouth and he would be, uh, in the taxi stand and he'd call me over and say, look, let me give you a lift. I'll give you a lift home. He had tons and tons of books. And I was just like, so fascinated by all these books in his car. And, uh, he'd say to me, you know, you're a quiet kid. I know you've got things to say. And he was the first person who touched me on the shoulder to say, I know you've got something to say about the world. I know you have, here, start reading. And I mean, I read, but, and I was a nerdy kid in general, but I didn't really read about the world if that makes sense. I didn't, I, I was almost like, I'm not important. And so me knowing things is not gonna have an impact. I'm just, a, I'm just an overweight brown kid who never will get a boyfriend, never will be accepted by white society. I don't even know, I'm supposed to be, maybe I'll be a doctor because I'm good at chemistry. I don't know. I mean, I had no self-esteem, and so because I had no self-love or self-esteem, I didn't think that I was worthy of any impact in the world. Um, but when he nudged me and say, "Read this book about Gandhi. Read this book about Buddhism." Um, you know, do you know that the the, the British uh, government still owns the, the 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 jewels of the Taj Mahal? They have not returned the jewels. Uh, the i Noor, which is the greatest diamond, is still sitting on the British crown's on the crown itself do you know they have not returned it do you know anything about oppression do you know anything about colonialism and I was like 12 or 13 and he just sparked an interest and I realized that my identity my physicality my brownness my woman was all actually a superpower and not an obstacle but you tell yourself it's an obstacle you tell yourself you're not good enough you tell yourself you're never going to fit in but really it was very super powerful i just didn't know that and i uh went through uh school i didn't get into medical school my parents were actually elated for me because they knew that you don't have to be the stereotypical you know they see south asian doctor you can go and do whatever you want that's why we moved to this country that's why we put you in a private school and got bursaries for you that's why we did all that so go and be free and again it was a choice right so I made that choice to do um, graduate work in French and people would say to me why are you doing French that has something to do with your culture and I'd say well why not why can't I do it and so I was given obstacle upon obstacle upon obstacle and that's when I knew Right. That actually those obstacles would have been put in my place, in my space, in my face, in my heart, in my center, because I need to move them out of the way for others. Maybe those obstacles were put in my path to make it a little bit easier for those behind me. If I can see that perhaps someone junior to me, someone younger than me, someone that looks like me, someone that's interested in the arts and humanities and doesn't think that they fit in because of how they identify. um, Maybe because I took on a few of those obstacles, they won't have to take as many, you know, this is why I love pride month we're in pride month right now and I love pride so much because what pride means to me is about being yourself it's just like a glorious time and it you know as you know it comes from uh the the stonewall incidents in the united states in the 60s uh and it was led by, by 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 black activists um and and i and i feel incredible like sense of joy and pride for being in halifax and being able to see pride in many ways and and so i i know in my heart that my uncle Reminded me that I have potential, that I had fire, that I had a belly, that I had a brain, and those two things are all works in progress all the time. And little did I know that I was going to go off and actually do work uh, that you know he he chatted with me in you know in our taxi rides together.
0: Ah, so glad I asked that question. <laughs> it was actually my first question I was supposed to ask you. <laughs> um but this really resonates with me like you know and some some I feel this themes come like really comes back often how like it just fascinates me how what once was an obstacle now it's like the way like this is the way like your obstacles are the way and they're not yes. just the way for you like because you're walking it you're like because you're walking it you're teaching others by it you know not just even like not just even with your words just like yes. with what you're yes. doing yes. <laughs> you know and people like your, your sons are looking at that that's impacting them your students are impacted by that you know yes. it's a, yes. incredible the ripples when you you know when you yeah, and I would and never I, feel, I would have never thought that. Too. I mean well yeah.
1: I don't think we always Go know ahead. that we have those effects, right? We don't always know we have effects on people. Um, and and that's and that's what keeps us, you know, supposedly modest and humble. Um, I don't believe in hum- being, having humility or modesty, because I think that that's something that's a, a patriarchal oppression. I feel that women are, are asked to be modest and humble, um, because that keeps, keeps male dominance up. Uh, and so, you know, I, I will say, people will say to me, oh, you are, um, you know, you've, you've really changed as you get older. So yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to change, we're supposed to grow. I'm supposed to be better than I was yesterday. I mean, it's a competition with myself. Um, I am not a type A person, My, you know, I don't have perfection in my life. Uh, I have a work-life flow. I have obstacles in my way. I still step on pieces of Lego on my, you know, and it hurts my foot every time, um, but it's a reminder that I have kids, and then maybe that Lego might not be Lego in a few years, right? It might be uh, uh, other, other you know, issues at work, or it could be um, how I'm treated by, um, by parts of parts of the population, or, or whatever it is, we, we're going to step on pieces of Lego every day, there's going to be a, a pinch of a reminder that you're alive. Um, and being alive means facing pain and, and, and joy in the same breath. And, and for me, you know, that moment with my uncle, many moments with my uncle, but that particular moment where I really remind, he really reminded me that I have a greater purpose. And, you know, we, we know that most of us are still working on finding that purpose. And some of us feel like we don't. Um, and I, I have a privilege, I had the privilege of working at a university. And so I have access to great minds. You know, I have access to great books. I have access to a lot of information. Uh, And sometimes that forces us to think that we have to learn more. We have to keep going, We have to keep going. And I'm learning now that my needs also mean I need to rest and I need to contemplate. I need to take time to perhaps after this, after this interview, sit for a little while with a cup of coffee and think about what I talked about with Estelle and think about what that impact might be for the next listener, and think about how that might inform my teaching, um, and think about how that might make, uh, how I'll choose to, uh, you know, engage in research. Every act and every moment that I have with another human being um, propels me forward in my purpose.
0: Oh, I want you in-house, she quests (laughs) in-house. I do want to ask you this, because that's, what we were supposed to talk about (laughs) but um uh we wanted to talk about you know diversity and inclusivity in in relation to yoga I uh I I do I I think we're gonna finish with that hopefully we're not opening another can of of something (laughs) but but if we are that that's okay like where do you see and, and I'm just like it's a general I guess question but like where do you see the lack of a diversity in the yoga class and per- perhaps we can stick to like Nova Scotia let's say like Halifax <laughs> half um I mean maybe like North America in, in general and yeah like where do you see the lack of diversity where do you see exclusivity like instead of inclusive in yoga yeah yeah
1: it's a really good question. And I think that it has a lot to do with comfort levels. And so often what's done in in uh, fitness spaces, in exercise spaces, um, is that we want the majority to be comfortable. And the majority in Halifax are white. And so what happens is um, the space is made such that the white gaze walks in and feels like it's not too different or othered or Asian or yogic, but it's comfortable for me, me, Jennifer, Heather, Samantha can come in and take a class and not feel overwhelmed by the otherness of the space. So there's a comfort level that's created that focuses and orbits around whiteness. When the yoga teachers, uh, often identify as white, uh, that also informs how that practice is going to be, because you can't change who you are. You are who you are. You can be a better version of yourself every day, every hour, every practice, every, every position, because that's what yoga is. Yoga is a practice and yoga is a learning to, to a sense of self with, you know, uh, an, an, an outward, um, outward impact right so as you go into warrior one you are using your inner strength to uh you know really um stretch all of your body and also release some of the energy out into the world in some form Um, and so when you're when you're a yoga teacher that identifies as white um you are a learner and you are a student and 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 you have your experience that is valid and probably works well in that white space I have never gone into a yoga class, maybe whether with yourself or with others where I felt absolutely comfortable. And that has nothing to do with the yoga teacher. That has nothing to do with the space. That has nothing to do with the windows or whether my baby at the time is paying attention or or, or wants to be breastfed or if the person beside me has has, has slimmer legs than I do or that person has a nice looking bra. No, it's about how I place myself in that space. And I have always been uncomfortable in yoga, partly because I feel an assumption that I should know more based on my ethnicity. Uh, I've always don't, liked my body. And so doing yoga has been stressful for me. And then on top of that, it's been under the white gaze. And so it, it, it's just, it culminates to be an uncomfortable place for me, which, which, which saddens me, but also propels me to think what, Why? And the why is because the yoga spaces that are created predominantly in Halifax are catered and created and marketed for the white dominant population. And the tropes of moments of um, yogic culture that are added to the yoga space are in marketing, in perhaps um, elements of images um, and, you know, are we hiring yoga teachers that, uh, are outside of the white population? I mean, I know i have been doing this app for a while where I perf, perf- you know, I actually purposefully try to teach, try to choose a, a black instructor and f- I feel relaxed. I feel actually completely different. And this is online. Like I'm not even seeing this black instructor, but when I see the black instructor, I'm actually more relaxed. And why is that? That is my experience. And so, when we're creating yoga spaces, you know, we can't always, we can't always create spaces that are going to help everybody and make everybody comfortable, um, because our mindset and those who are running the yoga studios have their own experience. And so, clearly, we need to have a yoga space that's run by a, a person of of of, of a non white um, ethnicity. This is actually what we need. And that's an uncomfortable conversation because yoga has been predominantly in North America on Turtle Island run by white people. And that's an uncomfortable conversation. Well, I'm I've been doing it for 10 years and I have this much training and you know I follow the That's great. But but it is it has been marketed for North America by North Americans for the North American population, which is predominantly white females, and and you know and you know Estelle, having been to India and you know having had training in India, um, most of the yoga teachers are men. Uh, many of them are in dhotis or you know loin cloths. Uh, Nobody is wearing you know pretty sparkly leggings. It's a very different practice in India. I mean, I remember my dad telling me, oh, every morning we would have Ujjayi breathing. I'm like, why didn't you tell me you did ujjayi breathing every morning? Oh, no, it's very normal for us. You know, you do, and then you do math. That's what they did. That's what they had. They had morning, they did morning assembly. And then there was ujjayi breathing in the classroom. And then you did math. That was, and that was not considered yoga. It was just normal part of the everyday assembly. And so the marketing of it is, is done under a white gaze, under the white, under the white, um, um, marketing system and it has to be decolonized. And I can say that I've been interested in watching uh, and I'm no expert, you know, in in terms of of what is being done. Um, But I know that in the United States, for example, there are more and more studios that are run by um, Americans of Indian descent who feel a strong need to uh, create spaces where women of color and particularly Indian women come into that space and feel comfortable. Um, and it, it, it's a challenging conversation to have because I, I know many yoga instructors. I've, you know, I've been going to Shanti yoga. I went to Bikram yoga before it closed. I, I have only had white instructors. Um, I have had mostly white women instructors and I've always felt that it wasn't the space for me. And if I saw an Indian man or an Indian woman teaching yoga, I would go to that studio.
0: I know you say it's like an uncomfortable conversation, but whenever I have it, like, I think it's easier. Like I crave more of it. And I, I, and I, and I'll say this, like, it's, it's so much easier for me to talk about it now that I've been to India. (laughs) Like, so like a hundred percent, like I wouldn't have, and like, even though I've read so many texts, even though I, you know, it's like su- just so different. And it's like, obviously a huge privilege that I, I got to do that. Um, and like this really, you know, I think it, I think you call it the sterilization of yoga <laughs> really, yeah. um, you know, it's I mean, I want to say tragic. I don't know if it's the right word, but um, like, like, for me, it's always, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a visual artist. And for me, that's always been the tragedy and why I merged it too. And when I I remember when I went to India, and I was like, it smells of incense. And it was like, every the, the walls were full of DTs and full of colors. And it was just like, it was just so like, it was just so different than like, the bl- everything blank and everything, you know, sterile, like really that word, like sterile that we get here. And, and that for me was so, I mean, it was so just in your face and like, really, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if you, if you haven't been to India, like if you can truly, absolutely. Do, do you know what I mean? And like, I know it's a privilege, but I did go there, like I did go there, but like, I'm, I'm really glad I did to, to see, uh, and 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 appreciate yes. that tradition and em- embrace you know the tradition as a, a white female able-bodied
1: i agree with you i think travel, i mean traveling to india is most empowering. we talked about this before we started The it's 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 empowering and it takes years to digest and i know that oh, one yeah. of my things that i want to do in my retirement or maybe earlier Uh, is I've always wanted to open up a boutique in in Halifax. My mother, when she moved to Nova Scotia after living in PEI in New Brunswick, she came to Nova Scotia, she opened up Maharani Boutique, Maharani means queen. And it was a little boutique in Penhorn Mall in Dartmouth in 1975, I was born in 76. And she opened it up and it was like a eclectic jewelry shop with scarves and beautiful earrings. And she sold it to white women. I mean, that's what the population was. And she would import things from India. And then she couldn't keep up with it because she was a nurse full time and she had a baby as well. Um, and so she closed it down. But that has been my dream is to, you know, we, we to really own a boutique owned by someone like myself um, where I would celebrate all of those colors, art, Jewelry, makeup, aesthetics, yoga, uh, meditation, um, and really bring it and bring bring away from the sterility and insert uh, the experience that I have had as somebody born here and having been to India a few times and having been part of the diaspora. So it would be not an Indian shop because it's not. I'm not Indian. I'm born here. I'm Canadian. But it would have the flavors, the experiences, the passion, uh the colors of of and and really the the agency and choice to create a space where I would feel someone like myself would be comfortable. You know, whenever I give a gift to somebody, somebody will say oh, I really like it and I always say to them it's it's something that I would want. I always always gift people things that I would want, and I feel like that's what that shop would be. It would be like the things that I would want my myself to have. Um, and uh, I really I have I have these little dreams, and I live in North End, Halifax, so I'm always like looking around. I'm like, oh, that place is on lease. Oh, I should get that, you know. And I think about it all the time, and it's something that's in my heart of just giving people a taste of happiness and joy. That I experienced when I went to India, and I experienced as as a person that I am. So that's on my that's on my radar, and I would love to have a yoga instructor there, who would be from India.
0: Uh, I love that you share all your dreams and and visions, and the more that you share them, like I already see it. So <laughs> <laughs> I already uh, see it, uh, Rohini. There's just so much more I want to speak with you, but um. I think I'll end the conversation there. There, um, okay. You're just so, your wisdom and knowledge and your, I, I'll say like your generosity, this conversation felt really, really gener- generous in, in all that you are, like not just what you know, but what you are and uh, you know, you're just what you exude and um and uh, I I just cannot wait for everyone to meet you. <laughs> everyone to meet you. Um, I had so many oh. other questions, but maybe maybe I'll learn, maybe I'll lure you fun. back. We'll we'll see if, if I if I if I can. Uh, we'll see if I can. Uh, before before we leave, just one last question: Is there um, if you had like one book you can recommend? And we mentioned before the work is obviously not just in books and such, but um, sometimes they do help. They are kind of pillars, you know, for, for us, um, for the, you know, audience, whatever ethnicity we might be listening to this and background and stories that, uh, you know, in terms of diversity, inclusivity, is there like a podcast or just a resource like, and I know I'm sure there's tons, but is there one that you can like direct us uh, towards?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I think that diversity, inclusivity, and equity come from reading things that you have nothing, you know nothing about. And so what I would say to somebody is when they're searching for something new, um, look at the last few things that you've been reading or listening to, and you'll notice a pattern. Okay. You'll notice that you're reading and and, and listening to things that are sort of the same. You say, no, 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 no. I'm always about change. I want to learn. I want to learn. But we don't actually. We stay in our comfort zone. And somebody gifted me American Gods by Neil Gaiman. It's like a science fiction, like classic science fiction book. You haven't read Neil Gaiman? Why haven't you read Neil Gaiman? I'm like, Neil Gaiman is like some dude from Britain who writes about. science fiction, like, I don't wanna read that. I a, you know, uh, I read about Mauritian literature or I read about, you know, uh, Barack Obama, or I read, you know, I'm, I'm an activist. No, read American Gods by Neil Gaiman, read it. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna read science fiction. This is what I'm gonna do. And one of my very, very favorite mentors from St. Mary's who's now retired, Dr. Jim Morrison, he always used to say to me, you need to read something before you go to bed that has nothing to do with work nothing to do with anything that you know and it's a form of escapism right this is why we watch films so this is why we watch you know things that don't don't we don't have to use our brain but actually because we don't know anything about the subject matter it forces us to think about inclusivity and diversity and equity because we're not familiar with it and that's what really leads that's what xenophobia is right it's xenophobia is the fear of the unknown. And so I was like totally, you know, mocking my friend, who's a professor of English uh, at Memorial. And he was like, you need to read Gaiman. Like, I'm I'm just really, this is very sad that you haven't read it. Anyways, I've read American Gods. I've read more of Gaiman books. Um, They're totally outside of my norm. I mean, my kids were making fun of me. They're like, why are you reading this? And it's because it, it forced me to see the world differently. And that's what leads to change. So don't read anything like look at what you read the last five books that you've read, look at the last five podcasts you've been listening to, and go somewhere different. Uh, I've been listening to uh, the blind boy podcast. Um, he's a guy from Limerick in Ireland, um, kind of a kind of a character. I've learned a lot of things um I have a very good friend David Delaney on which I've been doing uh some podcasts um be your best you that's a great podcast um a couple of friends have been sending ones from the U.S. I mean things that are outside of my normal realm and and then because I want we want comfort it's like it's like the macaroni and cheese or the the tandoori chicken and rice for me I mean it's it's that comfort that what we always go back to go completely different go somewhere where you've never gone before, go to the section of the bookstore that you'd never go to. That's what I would say uh, is, is my, and that's been the best advice that I've ever received.
0: What a great, what a great advice it is. Um, I have one more question uh, for you. I feel, um, and the, the last question has been changing over the years, but right now I'm going with like, we've talked a lot about I mean, we've talked about identity, but I feel we've talked about like self-expression as well. And I'm sure we could have talked more about creative writing or just ways to bring what's inside us out, but, and I think about the story, like your uncle's story and the, all the little, little nudge we get. Um, yeah. So I guess my last question for you is like, what do you wish more women knew about like their own magic and and mm-hmm. their own, like what they bring out into the world? Hmm.
1: The magic never dies. I think that we think that it goes away after a while. We think that the illusoire, that we think the illusion, the the sense of, um not knowing because we we often as women need to know we're planners we're caretakers we're nourishers we're educators and we need to know what's going to happen next and and the magic actually is in the unknown. And so that never really goes away. I think I, I remember very mu- very clearly being in eastern Ontario during my sabbatical in 2019. Uh, I was really unhappy. I didn't want to live there. I was worried that we were going to move there. It was it was quite a, a tumultuous time uh, in my personal life. And I remember thinking, is this it? Like, is this it? This is what I get. So I, you know, I, I got the kids and I got a good job. And but is that it for me? Like, is there not something else that I want? And, and and I forgot that I had magic still. And I forgot that the fire in my belly was there the whole time. Um, and so what happens is if I could tell, you know, younger versions of myself or other young women is that they will be moments where it will be the, you feel like the magic's gone. All you're doing is getting up and paying bills and going to bed and thinking about the next day about how you're going to pay the next bill. Um, But all around you is magic and all around you are miracles. And all around you, all inside of you are moments of, wow, I'm alive. I actually just finished a podcast with Estelle and I got to do that from the comfort of my home and in a safe and healthy space, I was able to self express. And now I have the internet to go and check my social media and go on to my day and get paid for it. That's magical. It's magical that coffee is able to be brewed. It's magical that water comes over a tap. It's magical that I produce three babies from my, this, from my body that I hated and loathed. So I would say that the best advice that I would say to people is that the magic is never ever gone. When you feel like the magic's gone it's always there and it's 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 covered up it needs to be uh you know maybe re- refocused reimagined um we change and so sometimes we're worried as as we age and we change and we grow and our relationships uh, also uh modulate along with us um that the magic is gone and and i and I really had an awakening when I realized that the magic was always there the entire time. And I still had an impact in the world. I still had an impact on myself that I still mattered. Uh, and that uh, despite things that were the parts of the world telling me that I wasn't good enough, um, there were other parts telling me that I was worthy of, of, of joy.
0: Such an important, important message that the magic never dies. I'm all for that, as you know. <laughs> as you know, um, oh, it's been such a pleasure. How? Where can we find you, and how can we support you, Rohini?
1: Oh, sounds great. Well, I am. Um, I'm on Instagram. I am uh, Rohini Banerjee, PhD. Uh, so double N in the Banerjee. I am on Twitter as well, uh, and those are the two places that I uh, probably are most active. Um, and uh, I'm on the Saint Mary's University website. So if you ever have academic questions or, you know, want to have a speaker uh, come out and and talk to you about uh, the the few things that I do. I'm also uh, a big supporter of unions. I'm the president of the faculty union. So I'm very interested in in workplace, uh, you know, egalite as well and and how we how we uh, uh, perform in higher ed as well. And um, so I I have my fingers in a few things and I'm available uh, to talk. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll
0: see you soon, hopefully.